Welcome to Reentry Stories, a podcast from public radio station WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I'm your host, Mary Evans. This is the third podcast of season four. Reentry Stories brings you conversations between people who were once in prison. We call them returned citizens, and I'm one. Returned citizens like me usually have trouble finding jobs, housing, education, and mental health services once we're on the outside again. And every year in Ohio, more than 20,000 people are released from prison. All the episodes of season four are about the Fringe Cafe in Hamilton, Ohio. It was started by Patrick and Sarah Davis in the fall of 2020 at the height of the pandemic. Starting it was a huge gamble, but they were convinced of the need to help return citizens like themselves, so they sold their house and put their life savings into it. Now, 18 months later, the fringe is still open and returned citizens are getting jobs and there are a variety of support services. In this episode, you'll hear Aria Morales, who's from Southwest Ohio. She was imprisoned for 14 years and while inside, took part in Scars and Bars, the music art therapy program started by Patrick Davis, one of the co-founders of The Fringe. With the help of the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, director David Singleton, and Tyra Patterson, who was falsely convicted of murder and released by the governor of Ohio in 2020, Aria's sentence was overturned April 15, 2021, and she was immediately released. She started working at the Fringe Coffee House soon after. Aria's journey to freedom was anything but easy. Going in, the transition was like numbing, overwhelming, um, very uh, depressing. And I felt like I had to start to like go into the survival mode because I've never been there before. Um, it was uh, a lot. I was fighting since day one, you know, uh, going through the process with me and my mother. And uh, being in the courtroom and, and getting judged and, you know, and people being biased because of, you know, who I am, my skin color, you know, not enough money. And I think all that plays a part when you deal with the, the court system. So then going into uh, being incarcerated, being locked up, it was, uh, I was, I couldn't, I couldn't stop crying. I didn't want to eat anything. Um, I didn't want to sleep. I was very restless. I had a fear because I didn't know what to expect going in. You know, I didn't want to leave my mother, you know, and that, that hurt my heart to leave and that part being away from my mother because I was 26 when I got arrested and locked up. And uh, when I went to RW, everybody was so nice to me. It was people I didn't even know that were just like, here, what do you need? It was like, what do you need? Uh, they gave me soap, uh, they gave me a coffee, uh, I mean, towels, anything that I needed coming in just in admissions alone. And I was so grateful. There was people that was really protective over me. And I mean, just instantly, you know, the staff uh, were really nice to me, even though they might have been the mean ones, they were actually nice to me. So it kind of made the transition a tad bit easier, but I had to go into this mind state where I was like, okay, now what? What do I do next? And you know, not try to get overwhelmed and try to put my stressors in one spot so I don't have a nervous breakdown because I was like, what am I, what to expect? Prison, I've never expected to be incarcerated. Mm -hmm. So that transition has been, uh, it's, it's been tiresome to my spirit. 
So then going from ORW, and um, for the listeners, the process is Ohio Reformatory for Women, um, which we say ORW, that is the intake center for women who commit crimes in the state of Ohio and are sentenced to prison. You might be there for a nonviolent offense, and the person right beside you might have went on a killing spree. And so it's just that whole process for me was just like, I'm here for drugs, you know, like in my mind, I'm like, I'm here for drugs and everyone around me has killed a child, mm-hmm. vehicular homicides, blatant homicides. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, how does this work? And then, you know, after that, after you go through these little processes and answering all these questions and all these things they have for you, then you get placed in, you know, your classification, like is your classification going to be low or high? I try to explain this stuff to people because a lot of times I think they watch those shows like Orange is the New Black or Wentworth and they think it's just a party up in here all the time. And it's like you have no idea, you know, the stress is like, yeah, you might have been in the streets and that might have led you to there. But to be in that setting where there's nowhere for you to go, sometimes the correctional officers could care less what happens. So your safety is always, you know, like people are like, how do you know, what is it like being in prison? I'm like, have you ever just felt like you had to watch your back 24 seven. I was like, now imagine that for seven years. That's what prison was like for me. But going to Dayton Correctional was a little bit different because of the rooms. It wasn't an open dorm situation. Mm -hmm. So transitioning to Dayton Correctional from Ohio Reformatory, how was that for you? The transition, I was in Marysville from like 2007 until 2011. And we started hearing about people being able to go to DCI, Dayton Correctional, because it used to be a men's facility. So I'm like, well, maybe I qualify as closer to my mother. Oh, my God, I'm, I'm in Cincinnati area. You know, how do I qualify? And, you know, I was sentenced with a 15-a-life sentence. So I didn't think I qualified for anything because, like, they told me, oh, you'll never be a level one. You'll never be able to go to DCI. Everything that they said was the totally opposite when I got to DCI. Like, I mean, we transitioned so fast, and then we had staff fighting for us as soon as we got in. I mean, me and uh, my mentor was, was there. We both had a life's tale on our sentence. And the day that we got off the bus, I think I was so overwhelmed just to get in a, car, in, a in a bus to ride. And, you know, even though we were shackled and handcuffed, I didn't even think about that part. I could not stay asleep. I woke, I stayed, I watched everything to go past. So, but when we got off the bus, we were the first two considered lifers that they knew about that got off that bus. So when we got off, you know, the captain and, and a couple lieutenants were like there. They wanted to see who these two lifers were. So they kind of stared at us and gave us that look, and here go me. I'm like, hey, how you doing? You know, I'm so friendly and happy, you know. But it's like on the inside, you don't even really know that this is a mask that I'm putting on because I'm like transitioning from one place to another. So I didn't know whether to be happy because I'm getting closer to my mother. I held on to that. But at the same time, it's like what do, what's, what's next to come? Opening that facility up and, and being the first people down there, I mean, how was that? I mean, what was some of the barriers did you face? Was there still male inmate items on the commissary? Were they prepared for you guys in any of those kinds of ways? They were not prepared for us at all. You literally had the women and the women's staff were pretty uh not aggressive, like physically, but just the face expressions and, you know, dressing us in and having to take our clothes off and the way that they did it. And there was, you know, the snickering. And so there was very like indirect comments that were made, which made us uncomfortable. 
And I just kind of like took that in of the men. Everybody was like in line trying to see who are these women? What do we do next? And how do we handle them? So they kind of almost like tried to pacify because they didn't know how to, you know, interact with the women or should or should they not? That was like their question of what and what not to do. And then when we got into the, the dorms, there were items like, you know, the, the men were, there were still items like from clothes to food to to uh, fans to converter boxes. There was TVs. There was stuff there that we accumulated just going in other units because they left it there. It was like they said, okay, pack up, go. And then when they left, the day they were shipping them out, they shipped us across the street from MEPRC. So then as they're riding out, y'all's rolling in. So it's like a, a revolving door. Wow. So then you're setting at Dayton Correctional. And the difference between, another difference between a higher reformatory and Dayton Correctional is the programming availability. At a higher reformatory for women, it's like, being on a, a college campus. It's huge. Um, you get to go down and shop yourself when you want to do um, arts and crafts. And that's like, you know, that's a freeing thing. You know, I'm going to go to the store and knowing that you can sign out and do that, you know, and then I get to Dayton Correctional and I'm like, arts and crafts are like, oh, here's a catalog. You'll order that. And I'm just like, okay, I want to sign up for programs. And I remember setting on a, um, what is that? Victims awareness. They want you to take that no matter what. And I, and I remember I was, in Dayton Correctional, I think 16 months before I even moved up on the waiting list and finally got in the class. So the programming, what was some of the differences that you've seen? Programming was the main one for me, but I know you've probably seen some different stuff considering that you were incarcerated a little bit longer than me. So what was some of the difference that you you seen and was just like, man, I wish I was back at ORW? I think there, it was like either one. It kind of was like a toss-up. Because in Marysville, I had because of the time that I had, being I had 15 in life, they made it harder for me to get in school. I never was able to get in school. I went to church. I went and I sung in the choir. Um, I got to go to arts and crafts, you know, whenever I wanted to. Um, you know, the NAAA, I've involved myself in that because I wanted to program. Uh, I had a liaison and mental health, so I was able to sign out and go to her whenever I needed. You know, it was a level of freedom that I had. The The cons of that was because of my time, they limited me. Because of my time, uh, the 15 of life, I couldn't be a level one, which helps us better when we're fighting a case or anything like that. I get to DCI, I got in GED classes, I was I, in a ministry, I praised dance, I mimed, uh, I did so much. And I was able to fight to an appeal to get my level one. However, <laughs> you know, the victim awareness, I did that. The waiting list, because it's so small, it dragged out, and I had to wait and wait and wait. And I said, well, I, at one point in my time, I said, I guess I'm going to be here for a long time. And I had to change my speech, you know. But things started progressing after maybe a couple years or something. You had to wait a long period of time. So it kind of varied for me. Inside, you spoke out and, and got a lot of things done. Um, what were some of the organizations and groups that you were involved in beyond the church? And let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I did a PowerNet. I did graduate from that. I did culinary arts. But outside of that, I was in a recovery unit and, um, you know, they wanted me to facilitate groups in the recovery um, I did a little bit of that when some people went in there, kind of stepped up to the plate. Um, I was more of the encourager, so I've did a lot of the organizations um, where I was once a treasurer. You know, we did uh, 
it was so many of them. It was like five or six of them, if I'm not mistaken. And at the time, watching you guys kind of take over and show us how to go, I learned how to do like a money, like the order order sheets and things like that. And so I was able to become vice president, which and then I became president of another group, you know. And you had a wow, it was quite a few groups. Oh, I can't remember the names. It's been a while. It's so it's, many. it's so many, but we did um. We did a lot, ERA, 7-Step. You know, uh, the last group I was in was 7-Step, and I was uh, the vice president of 7-Step. And it was amazing, you know, but everybody kind of was in competition after a while, you know, but it, the staff didn't make it easy either, you know. But going through that and being able to, like you said, put on makeup and be a part of something that you can make a change in a place like that means so much to a woman. Uh, we started a dance group called uh, called uh, the uh, Big Girls because you have a lot of bigger women there. They had dance groups, but there's bigger women there that didn't feel as pretty, that didn't have you know the money or the means. So we would get bags together and then on a special, we'll give them their special day and surprise them with like a bag with you know whether it's lip gloss or some soap and you know the small things that women miss when we're in that place and it meant so much because a a lot of them didn't have that. And so to see them happy like that and be able to dance and just feel beautiful in a place of sadness, like where they make you feel like you're less than a woman, and we brought that back. It's important. No matter where you're at, you have to be okay with yourself. And just sometimes you are a, 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 a pillar. So to be able to take part and be a pillar in somebody's life and then next week after that you see one of the girls, you know, the bigger women that they had on makeup or they did their hair and, you know, whether it's a braid style or was able to get a flat iron and do something and they say, oh my God, when are we dancing? And, you know, to, let, to just give me the feedback on how it made them feel. I was like, thank you, God, I did my part and you used me for that. It meant so much because that place will make you go into a depression. Oh, yeah. Did you reach out to Mr. Singleton or did he reach out to you or was it the process of watching your mentor finally have her successes and get released? I mean, what made you kick it into gear and say, you know what, I went out of here and I'm going to fight to get out of here? Oh, man. <laughs> so it started in Marysville, actually. I had a, a innocent project working on my case. When I got uh, Tyra Patterson said, oh, I mean, I seen her Marysville. She said, oh, I'm not going to forget about you. We had a small conversation. We used to have visits together with our mothers, and we would get connected to people's family. So Tyra Patterson started the footwork with David Singleton just putting a word in, and my mom. Somehow they just connected on that level. And then when we got to Mary, I mean, DCI, she always said, I wouldn't, Tyra Patterson, I would never forget you. I'm not gonna leave you in here. You know, she always said that. And you know, sometimes you're like, oh, okay, yeah. And so I'm like, not thinking I'm that important for somebody to be in a position I am to actually really remember me because, you know, oh, once they get out, it's like, hey, I'm out. And, and it's like, and I think, I'm thinking, because you're on that end, huh, nobody's going to help me. The only person who's going to help me is my mom. So my mother and my father passed away. My mom passed away last year. She was my advocate. She didn't just fight for me. She fought for everybody who, who was either wrongfully convicted, who was, you know, getting treated unfair in there, whatever she did, whatever voice she wanted to be, that's what she did. And so I, I um, when my mom passed uh, last year, David had already took over because the Innocent Project, after 10 years working on my case, they stopped working on it. And this is a non-DNA case. And 
I was so angry. I, I mean, I went, I took my anger and I took it and I took it and I beat myself up over it and I was just angry. And so um, my mom, uh, I could, when my mom passed, that was it. I'm like, okay, I was ready to give up. I was done. I said, I got a 15 of life since I don't have an out day. I said, I'm not gonna get out of here. I started speaking things negative. David said, I'm stepping up. He went to see my mother. And the day that my mother was at hospital, she said, please get my baby out of prison. And he never forgot me. And Tyra Patterson was there with my mother. She was, I never, when I seen a Skype with my mom, Tyra Patterson was there. Michelle Robinson, she was there. That's my mentor. She was there. We all had life sentences and we're all home. And I didn't even see this day. So Dave, David Singleton, he would come see me. And, you know, even when he comes see Tyra Patterson when she was still there, he would stop and just say, hey, I'm just checking in and making sure you're okay. He never gave up on me. He said, your mom, you know, he tried to get me out. There was things he was doing. And sometimes you're like, uh, whatever. And then COVID hit. And then it stopped everything. And I went through so much. That transition after my mom passed, I was, I went through so much. And I mean, like, literally... <laughs> And so uh, this year came around and, you know, I kind of tried to take in everything, but David stayed in touch and he never gave up. Even Tyra Patterson never gave up. Michelle Robinson, I mean, they never gave up. Them three are like amazing people in my life. Patrick and Sarah, they said, when you come home, you have a job, you have a job, you know? And I'm like, wow, you know what I mean? I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Like, I'm like, okay, God, I'm trying to embrace what God has given me. But then it's that anger and that depression that I started suffering from. So then, you know, um, ministry, oh, you know, you're going to go home. You're going home. I see you going home. People say it, and they, they see things, and it's like, I have the gift to do it, but I'm so blinded by my own feelings and pain, I don't see past that because I lost my best friend. So then David came and see me, and he's, all of a sudden, he's like, hey, I mean, the conversation went to one thing to another, and he's like, you're, I get an a, um, email, and it says right on my email, the judge inclined your release. You will be going back. It was on the news. I almost passed out. It just happened, like, out of the blue, and they had to carry me to the room, and I cried, and I laid on the floor, and I cried for like an hour. And I was just like, well, I want my mom because she's supposed to see it. They're like, your mom is here with you. She's, she put the seed, you know. And so I was like, wow. So the next, you know, one minute I'm there. And then next minute, I mean, this is like in April, the beginning of April. Next yeah. minute, I'm back at April 25th. I'm yeah. back in the county. And then the, the 29th, you know, I mean, the 30th. I've seen the picture of you and your purple sweatpants <laughs> being released. And you know what's so crazy? I ran into Tyra right before Dave started doing his shows. Um, Dave Chappelle was having his shows and I was trying to get her a ticket. Mm -hmm. And I ran into her and I took a picture. And I was like, I was like, thank you for all the work you do. And she's like, no, thank you for all the work you do. And I said, no, I mean that. I was like, you really, really, really are helping these women get out of there. I mean, when I see Michelle, I knew that there was a God and that, and that he was real mm -hmm. and that things could happen. Mm -hmm. Then when I click on Facebook <laughs> and it was like, Aria Jeffries, I was like, I know. It's tough. Cried. Yeah, no. Cried. Just like today when I when we when we hugged each other for the first time. Cause I know what I, I couldn't imagine what you went through. COVID was the most horrendous thing that anybody incarcerated ever went through in their lives. I don't care what they say. It could have been an LC. An LC is 120 days in segregation, the whole doesn't compare to what y'all went through. 
during COVID. And I couldn't imagine the one person who was your advocate, your best friend, your everything, your voice, your hands, your everything, leaving you in that moment when it gets so much more darker and dimmer. And then there is truth to that. How you speak determines everything. And I used to always tell everybody, I'm going to get me a full ride. I'm going to get out of here. And I did that. And it's just like, I think for you, you had to go through that for you to see the brightness. You know what I mean? You had to go through that darkness to be able to come out and see the brightness. And I feel like that's why everything went the way it is. But gosh, that went fast then. So the beginning of April, Mr. Singleton comes in. Next time it's an email. Two weeks later, you're in court. Now you're out here working. About to have your own apartment. Where do you see yourself in like the next five years? You're going to go back to school and further your education. You're going to try to do something at culinary arts. What are you going to do? Okay, now I plan on um, becoming an ordained minister. I want to do that, but I don't want to be your typical ordained minister. I'm still me. Because I want people to be comfortable with knowing God's love for real, not just something fabricated based on opinionated preaching. I'm, uh, I want to be there for people who are homeless, that don't have anything or have any encouragement. Give them backpacks and have a nonprofit organization for people that are struggling with addiction that are homeless out there, the people that are forgot about. I want them to know they're not forgot about. I want them to see what God's love really is. I want them to see that. And then I also um, I want to do something as far as the children, like the ministry, boys and girls, to teach them how to maybe mime and praise dance and let them know that through their dance, that's their testimony. Because nowadays the children go through so much that they take on adult pain, and there's got to be an outlet for them. And what better way is uh, through dance, you know? And, and, and then you dance for God. Like, it doesn't, it's, that's a, a feeling that I can't explain. So there's some of the things that I really got planned. Um, I'm going, I have to finish my GD. I have a math that I have to finish. I'm the worst. <laughs> but I plan on doing that. And once I do that, then maybe I can start taking college courses. I move in my apartment Wednesday. I got my furniture coming in. Like, I'm so grateful. So I'm able to get my license. I got to transfer, you know, turn my transition. I don't want to take too big of a step. But those are the things that I plan on doing. And maybe hopefully have a food truck. Name it after my mother. (laughs) I'm just so thankful to be here with you right now and to share this space with you and to be able to, you know, just be in your presence, just to be in your presence outside of those walls. That was my conversation with Aria Morales. Aria is no longer employed at the Fringe, but she's still involved with the organization, especially the Fringe Church. She has exceeded some of her goals. She's still attending youth ministry classes and is now an ordained minister. Plus, Aria is now a licensed driver and the owner of two new cars. Reentry Stories features conversations with formerly incarcerated men and women in Ohio on the radio and on the web at WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio. It comes from the Eichelberger Center for Community Voices at WYSO. You can hear all the stories in this series and see photos of the participants at wyso.org. The editor of the series is Nina Ellis. Thanks for listening. I'm the series producer, Mary Evans.